uh, jump right in as we start this new series of the book of Psalms, um, calling it Summer in the Psalms, and it really is a feast. Now, if you didn't know, you might not know this, there's 150 chapters uh, in the book of Psalms, so we're not covering 50 of them today, uh, but we are going to cover sort of um, a bigger scope of it, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, But I encourage you throughout the month of August to be reading the Psalms, and more than reading them, I encourage you to be praying them. As you read them, make them uh, your prayers. There's great power, I think, when we pray through the the Scripture. But one of the great uh, amazing things about the Psalms is they cover uh, much of the nation of Israel's history. Uh, One of the Psalms, or a few of the Psalms, were written by Moses. And so Psalm 90 is one example. And so you have Moses writing Psalms, of course, famously, the majority are written by David. Uh, You know, a thousand years later, he wrote Psalm 137, for example. And within the Psalms, you see their contents are uh, history, biography, diary, uh, tragedy, poetry, much of it. And so much of the Psalms, though, are even embedded in our cultural consciousness as, as people. Even people that don't even maybe go to church very much, they may have known something like the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, things like that. Yeah, there's, there's so much of it that we, it's part of our lexicon, but we might not even uh, acknowledge it. Now, the, the book of Psalms was deliberately written to be used by successive generations as like a songbook. Uh, the best way we could say is like the Psalms is like a prayer book or a hymn book. For the people of, of Israel, for the Jewish people then and now, it was and is uh, their songbook. And at least what's recorded in the Gospels, it, the Psalms are the most quoted book of the Bible quoted by Jesus. Uh, he quoted them um, repeatedly. And I'm going to go through a lot of them right now because I think it's just fascinating to see how many times he did quote the Psalms as authoritative. He quoted them in moments of conflict with other people. Um, he quoted them uh, as a way of, of showing the truth of God's word. And he never apologized for it, but he used it. He didn't use it. He just, he is the word. He's, he's using the Psalms, speaking the Psalms, or in things like this. He was asked for a sign to show him who he is, so he quotes uh, Psalm 78. The Jews wanted to stone him for claiming to be God because he he's quoted Psalm 82.6. He called himself the chief cornerstone. He countered the Pharisees on more occasions than we can uh, list here, but he quotes the Psalms in their, their debates. He foretold Jerusalem's destruction. He quotes Psalm 118. He talks about his betrayal, Psalm 41. He told that he would be hated without cause. Pilate asked if he was the son of God. When he's dying on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. I encourage you to read Psalm 22 on your own because uh, it's remarkable of the specific details uh, that it shows a crucifixion of someone, bones being out of joint. My skin is pierced. My, my tongue is like wax. Uh, they, they, they're gambling for my clothes. Are you serious? Uh, Psalm 22, such a prophecy about Christ. Um, Committed in his spirit to his father, he quotes Psalm 31.5 when he dies on the cross. Speaking about those who work their way into the kingdom. Speaking the hate the world has for him. Speaking the sorrow for his soul. Speaking of man's rewards for his works. Speaking of the manna God gave to their forefathers. Telling about the time they will see him, Jesus, again. There's much more than that. But he quotes Psalms repeatedly. The words of the Psalter were always on the lips of the Savior. And that he was constantly, it was in his mind, it was in his words, it was how he spoke and ministered 
to people. Now, the, the Psalms show us what it looks like for the gathered people of God to worship God. They expand our vocabulary of worship. Psalms don't simply t- tell you about worship or a devotional life, but they are worship. They lead us in worship. They invite us to learn by doing. Now, one of the great things about the Psalms, and you could throw in things like lamentations as well into this category, is that any human emotion is shown in the book of Psalms. Like any way that you've ever felt in your life, you will find it in the book of Psalms. Um, The Psalms reflect the human experience. Things like doubt, praise, sorrow, confusion, anger, joy, lament. That's one of the beautiful things about God's word is that it allows you to be fully human and it doesn't apologize for it. So in the next three weeks, we're going to be covering sort of a, you know, a thousand foot view of a couple of the meta themes of the book of Psalms. Today we're looking about, there's so much of the Psalms, not just in Psalm 99, but there's so much of the Psalms about God's place, his person, and his promise. There's so many promises in the book of Psalms that God makes. We see so much about God's place uh, in heaven and about God's person, his, God's characteristics. Uh, how does the Bible ex- uh, describe God? Is so much in Psalms. The next week, there's a, a great deal of Psalms is about God in a crisis. Where, God, where are you? You see so much of David lamenting the, stat, the status of his own life in crisis he's experiencing, but also you see Psalms lamenting about the status of Jerusalem or the people being taken into slavery, for example. And you see this wrestling with God in a crisis. And then the blessing of community. The Psalms actually say quite a bit about living in community with each other. So that'll be the next three weeks. So we're looking at Psalm 99 today, and it's really a picture of God being enthroned above all of creation, uh, the splendor and the majesty and the awe and the wonder of of God in heaven. And it it gives you a piece of my brain. I was raised on television, so it got me thinking about a television show um, called Undercover Boss. Anybody ever watch this television show? Now, they have really bad disguises in Undercover Boss. I mean, they didn't spend five seconds on these guys. I mean, I could buy that wig on Amazon like that. I mean, look at that. I mean, I, that, that's almost an anti-disguise. But it's, Undercover Boss, the purpose is these guys are CEOs of some very well-known companies, and they go in undercover dressed like that and uh, work with, like, like they're on the crew, you know, and they, they, they're there working side by side, cleaning toilets or making sandwiches, not at the same time. And... <laughs> Doing all of these things, Undercover Boss is basically a commercial for X company, right? That's all it really is, but it's an entertaining show. And one of the CEOs, they always eventually focus on three people, right? So you've got like two employees, they're having a hard time, and uh, they need a scholarship or a car or something. And it shows how, how wonderful the CEOs are. They, they kick in and give money to these people. There's always a third employee that was picking his nose while making a hamburger or something. And they have to, you know, give them the riot act. Um, but, and then, you know, that's basically the, the gist of the show. But when you read Psalm 99, you get a picture of, here we see, I don't, I don't, I don't like to refer to God as CEO. I think that's kind of not quite ap- applicable. But you see God as not undercover, basically. You see God as fully as who God is in Psalm 99. There is no hiding the picture of God we see in Psalm 99. Like, like let's, let's, let's just read it together. It's really not very long. The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne. 
between the cherubim. Those are guardian angels. There's different types of angels. There's a hierarchy to them. There's messengers. Uh, that's, that's millions of them. Cherubim will have like flaming swords. They're huge. Um, they're there protecting God. They're there, uh, you know, surrounding him. You see them throughout the book of Revelation as well. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Your name is holy. Mighty king, lover of justice, you have established fairness. You have acted with justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also called on his name. They cried to the Lord for help, and he answered them. He spoke to Israel from the pillar of cloud. You see this, this history being, foreto- being retold. And they followed the laws and decrees he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving God to them, but you punished them when they went wrong. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem. For the Lord, our God, is holy. You he- see here his person and God's place and his promise. First, his person you see these, these words like, God is holy, he's complete, he lacks nothing, he needs nothing, he's pure, he's undivided. And you see this call for response, of bowing low, of exaltation, of worship, of, of, of giving over of your life. It's, it's, it's almost rem- reminiscent of the book of Revelation, that you see God as he really is. You see God in his ultimate place. And when we have that vision of who God is in his ultimate place, then we find our place in the world. That right thinking about God leads to right living. It's not a a straitjacket to put around your life. Right thinking about God leads to right living. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's for our good that you see God as he really is, as the Lord and King of all creation. Now, I was watching a show on Netflix again. Um, well, you can tell how much I watch television, can't you? Uh, uh, and it was an, a Netflix thing about the James Webb Telescope and how uh, it took billions of dollars, 20-something years, an incredible achievement to get this thing up into the sky. And you see the difference between Hubble and the James Webb. Uh, when they, they got this up there, it was even more clarity to these pictures they t- they were, they're taking. And um, when they talked about Hubble, they said, when we got Hubble up there, was it 1995? Something like that. We pointed it at what we thought was a blank piece of sky. We thought there was nothing there. And pictures like that is what we saw. We were astounded by what came through the lens. We're essentially looking back in time and see the origins of the universe because astronomy, which I got a C in in college, uh, but I do remember this, it's all about really the study of light and that you're essentially, what, you're looking at something from millions of years ago. It takes that far for light to get to us from those galaxies. Um, you know, this is something they said though. We were astounded when Hubble went live and even more when James Webb went live. It, we learned so much more about humanity's origins after the Big Bang. Now, they stop short at attributing pictures like that to God. They're never going to do that on a television show like that, which I think is hilarious. Like, you think that has happened by accident? I mean, you think a grand design 
points to a grand designer. Just like a moral law that people have points to a moral law giver. It's like, it's like the analogy of finding a stopwatch on a beach. Let's say you're walking on the Outer Banks and you're walking along the sand and you have a drink in your hand and, and the wind is blowing and, and there's surfers all around. And as you're walking along, you see a stopwatch on the beach. Now, if you picked that stopwatch up and looked at it, you wouldn't think, wow, the ocean produced this. It just spit it out and made it for me. That's amazing. You would rightly think some sort of intelligence produced this watch and I found it. Somebody made this. There is a mechanism that was found in 1901 off the coast of Antithitaka, Greece. And they, uh, historians still don't know who made it. It was created roughly in the second century BC. And it was a highly intricate working of, of mechanism that could foretell uh, astronomy, it could foretell the movement of the stars. It was hundreds of gears intertwined with itself. Second century BC. And no one knows who made it or how it was made. Now, no one finds that and says, oh, that just made itself. We don't know where it came from, but uh, I'm sure it didn't come from an intelligence. Of course not. It's the same way when people look through a stunning telescope and see a stunning image of the universe and just assume that it made itself. It's lunacy. It's really, that takes more faith than I've got. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with stopping short and attributing things like that to God. But science typically does stop short at the theological, which is why theology has historically been called the queen of the sciences. Because ultimately, we have to, when you talk about God, we're talking about the laws God made, the study of God is over and above any other human pursuit. And when you read Psalm 99, the heavens are created by the handiwork of God. God is enthroned in splendor, and he's surrounded by angels with, who are like covered in fire, and they're holy, and they're bowing down, and they're worshiping God. And we're going to look at all of that and say, this is all a happy accident. You know, if they even attributed those things to the work of God, they would almost just say, oh, he's just one of the crew. Is, is, is the Lord Lord to you, or is he just a symbol? Is the Lord Lord to you, or is he just a symbol? Is he the king of all that is, as described in Psalm 99, or is he just one of the crew to you? This is the beauty of Jesus, though, friends, is that, yes, Jesus is God. He is the eternal one. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He always has been, and he always will be. But here's the wonder of Christ, that in all of that, Psalm 99 and so many other pictures in the Psalms, Jesus did come undercover. He was born under the cover of darkness, almost like a beachhead being made in enemy territory on that night in Bethlehem, and it pleased God to do it this way, that this God enthroned in splendor and power and majesty and awe and wonder would come among us as a servant in order to exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Philippians chapter 2 said, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be exploited 
Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. And as I said earlier, Psalm 22, Jesus quotes that from the cross. So the Psalms show us the perfection of God's person. It also shows us God's place in the universe. We need to see God as he is revealed in Scripture, not as we wish him to be. And as we see God revealed in Scripture, his place here is as king, as a, on a throne, exalted above all the nations. The, the psalm says he is holy. He is a lover of justice. He is righteous. He is fair. He answers. He forgives. So you read that, and we think, well, why is it so important to see God as lofty and enthroned as Theologians would call a high Christology. Why is that so important to see God as exalted above the heavens and the earth? You can think of it this way when we talk about sin. Human beings are born rebels. And because we are born rebels, we are unaware that we are even rebels. This is the deception of sin in the human existence. Because of sin... The self is enthroned above God. We enthrone ourselves. Rebellion is humanity's native tongue. That's how we're born. Rebels. And we want to enthrone ourselves on our little tiny thrones. You know, when I was uh, a kid, we went to a uh, Baptist church. And I, you know, I love the preacher there. He baptized me when I was 12. Um, but bless that man, but he read every single sermon. He never left the page. I mean, it was so, I, I, I stayed up late every Saturday watching Saturday Night Live, and I was exhausted, and I couldn't wait for the long prayers, because then I could close my eyes. And I remember there's the pulpit in the center of that beautiful sanctuary, and they had these three little chairs behind you. Remember these? These three little thrones, and these, th- these men would sit there, and I would say, what, what, are those like thrones? Like, is that like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Like, is that like the Trinity or something? You know, I never understood that. But you see these, these, these thrones, these little thrones that we want to enthrone ourselves. We want to enthrone ourselves as, as, as outside of Christ. We, we, that's who we are. We're, we're rebels. Our native tongue. And the constant assertion of self, it appears to be a perfectly normal thing. In our human nature, it appears to be perfectly normal. People are willing to share themselves, even maybe sacrifice yourself for a desired end, but we never really want to dethrone ourselves. We don't want to get on our knees. I don't want to abdicate my rights to someone higher and greater than I am. No, no, no. I want manifest destiny. I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps and assert my own independence over and above the authority of the Holy One as described in Psalm 99. But hear this, friends. Repentance is a gift of God. When God calls individuals to repent of their sin, to bow low before him, it is not to harm you or to cause any sort of um, judgment over you. 
It is actually to find freedom in this place, in that place. That's the grace of God pursuing you. It's a gift of God. It's sort of like, I remember when my son was three years old, we went to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Anybody ever been to Cracker Barrel? Of course you have. Everybody's been there. And we went to Cracker Barrel, and we're leaving, and he gets in this little car seat, and he sits in his car, in his seat, and I'm buckling him in, and I see something in his pocket, like a, a, a looked like the, sh- the shape of a pack of gum. And I said, buddy, what's in your pocket? And he, he put his hand over it, and he pulled it out, and he held it. He said, nothing. I said, buddy, I think there's something. I think that's not nothing. I think that's something. And he said, open your hand. I said, open your hand. And and he held so tightly to it, and he just gripped it in his little white knuckles. And I peeled his fingers back. And it was a pack of Trident. And I was like, you could do better than Trident, Boone. I mean, maybe like a chocolate bar. And I'd peel his little fingers back, and and we went into Cracker Barrel, and I made him apologize, and we gave it back. And the lady was very sweet. And then she put him in the kitchen and made him wash dishes. No, I'm kidding. But so many times in my life, in your life probably too, I feel like a little kid that I'm just, I'm just clinging to what I think is mine. And God comes along and says, why don't you open your hand? Let me just peel back those fingers and see that there's freedom on the other side of that. Have an open hand. Don't have a tight fist. Because that's where you find freedom is laying down your life, you find your life. When we worship the God enthroned in splendor, you, you, you receive far, far more than you ever could have imagined. And friends, that is our future. That is what awaits us. That's what the host of heaven is doing now. They are that cloud of witnesses beyond number. They are worshiping God for all eternity. And so why wouldn't we want to join in that song, which I would argue is the song of the universe? As Jesus said, hey, if you quiet the people on Palm Sunday, the the stones are going to cry out anyway. You can't stop the worship of God. It's always going on. Because so many people go, I remember when uh, in college, my, my, my sweet mate, who took a shower about once every two weeks, he came up to us. And we were watching a worship video, and he was like an atheist, and he was like, oh, that's just propaganda. You're just being brainwashed by the man. And I got, okay, you're cynical about worship. I get it. But if you could see Jesus for who he is, you would want to worship too, Dan. We would, but you don't, you don't know him yet. It, it's, you know, God invites all people to lay down their... Th- their, their crowns, if you will, at his throne. Like even in Revelation chapter four, what are the elders, 24 elders? We're not quite sure who these people are. Some say half of them are the 12 disciples. We're not really sure. Revelation doesn't, te- doesn't tell us. Whoever they are, God has given them authority. He's given them uh, a place of honor. And they are on these little mini thrones and they have crowns. And the Lord has blessed them in this way. But even in that place of perfection and worship, these elders get up off their thrones and they take off these, th- these crowns that God has given them and lay them down at his feet and, 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 and worship God forever and ever. 
And in Psalm 99, we see this perfect image of God as described. We see his place, we see his person, and his promise. There's so many psalms that are, his, that are God's promise to you. And as Keith plays a little bit, I'm just going to read some of these and let the psalms minister to you in a way that somebody somewhere is going to specifically speak to you. Psalm 34, 17. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Psalm 50, 15. They, then call on me when you are in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. Psalm 55, 22. No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word I said. In my holiness, I cannot lie. Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Psalm 32, 8. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Give your burdens to the Lord, and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Psalm 84. A single day in your courts, God, is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives grace and glory the Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. O Lord of heaven's armies, what joy for those who trust in you. And lastly, Psalm 147. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages up their wounds. Let's pray together. God, in this moment, Thank you that you do heal the brokenhearted. You bandage up their wounds. And I pray for anyone here and now or at home who is wounded, who needs to be reminded of your promise. And I pray, God, you would give them faith to see that, that your promises are for them. That you, they would break through that emotional barrier that, you, that some people seem to think, God, your promises are too good to be true or they're for somebody else. God, I pray they would see that's just not true. Your word is for all people. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, that all who might believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, thank you that in, when we find and see you in your place, enthroned in splendor and majesty, God, we also find our place. As we bow low in reverence, Lord, you will lift us up and give us honor. And Psalm 30 says, God, if we sow in tears, we will reap with songs of joy. Lord, I pray your spirit to do ministry among us in these next few moments, to come up to the front and pray if we wish. God, to come with an open hand, not a tight fist. Thank you, God, you're patient with us. And you peel back those fingers 
and you want us to let go and to find that when we surrender, we find our lives. And when we choose to follow you, all things change. So come Holy Spirit, minister to your people.